My name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. So it's Saturday, April 11th, day 27 of my family's lockdown. And, you know, watching the national dialogue around all this start to open up and start to get weird and divisive as, you know, as ever is bound to do everything. Everything in this country is weird and divisive, but it strikes me how much people are talking about philosophy and, you know, what the government should and shouldn't be allowed to do and, and it, but, but also talking about this disease as if it were theoretical, you know, it might, might happen. Things might get one way or another way or, and I think it's just really important that we all remember that this thing is real and that real people are actually getting very sick and not like getting the flu sick, but, you know, going to the hospital sick, intensive care sick. Um, that's really happening to people by the thousands, particularly here in New York. And um, I've been real lucky that I don't have any... Um, close friends or family or, you know, close work acquaintances or anything who have ended up in the hospital. But I mean, it's right there. It, for me, it's right there. It was two doors down. My friend, Phil, um, who is a guy I know and like and say hi to, and we bump into each other all the time when we're gardening in the front yard. And, um, and he's a doctor himself, uh, rheumatologist, he got this and got very sick and was in the hospital for several days. Um, and he was kind enough to talk to me and share that experience and give us a little insight into what it's actually like to have a bad case of COVID-19. And so I'm very happy that he was willing to do that, and I'm very happy to be able to share it with you. So here's Phil. So how how are you feeling? I now? now I feel you know pretty much close to 100. percent The only thing is I you know for the past week or so I've been saying yeah I'm going to try to do some exercise today, and I just haven't gotten around to it or or been up for it. That's the only thing where. Where, I've been doing that. I've been doing that for decades. <laughs> well, you know, I, I that, that's one of my that's one of my releases is exercising. So, so then I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, let me just sort of, you know, do some and even simple, you know, yoga. Not, not saying yoga simple, but I mean meaning like nothing overtly, like grossly strenuous. And I'm like, and I just, uh, I'm, I'm not quite up for that yet. Yeah, the mind is willing, but you know, but the body is isn't quite there yet. So, tell tell me about how this began. Like, when when did you start feeling sick? And and I started how did feeling that... sick. Actually, I I, I, w I put up some wood paneling in the house on a Saturday, like the second weekend in March, and at the end of the night, we were going to you know watch a movie with the kids, and I just felt totally wiped. And I'm like, wow, I'm really wiped out. And my muscles are really sore. All my muscles are really sore. And I was just using a drill essentially. But I'm like, oh, that's kind of odd. And then I started to have chills. 
and then I checked my temperature and I had a fever. And then that was that Saturday night was the starting point sort of very suddenly of having <clears throat> recurrent daily fevers for the next, the fevers continued for 10 days, but it was uh, around eight days of fever that I was ultimately admitted to the hospital. But, but it started just with fever and um, significant muscle aches and a mild headache and profound, profound um, fatigue to the point that I was, I was in bed all day, but I was sleeping probably 16 hours a day. And then I was isolating myself because of my concern that I had COVID or some other virus. And so I was also just essentially staying in my room and then with, you know, my wife bringing my meals to the, to the bed. Had you, was it different from other things you've, you've had before or other? Well, I've, I've been lucky enough that I, as an adult, I think I've had fever three times and for a day. I mean, I've never had fever even two days in a row that I can recall. Um, and, the, and, the, and the fatigue was debilitating. I mean, it was to the point where it wasn't just that I was keeping myself isolated from my family, but I, the concept of getting, having the strength to get out of the bed was not even there. I'm like, I was just, I was so exhausted I could barely move. Even it was an effort to get to the bathroom, which then unfortunately progressed, which prompted going to the ER. So what what does that mean, progress? Like, why did you decide? Well, I, I initially, when I was on the Saturday night, I had fever. And on Sunday, I called one of my friends who works in an emergency room in Brooklyn. I just called him and he said, listen, I'm in the ER come on in and I'll just check you out for COVID. So he, I came in and he checked, did this very painful, multiple painful swabs to check for COVID and, and another viral panel. Swab is, is, a, is a euphemism for what they do, but it's, a, it's sort of a painful, um, it's something like a, um, a brush that you would use to kind of, the kind of brush that you used to clean out um, uh, bottles and stuff. There's a smaller version of that, which is which they shove into your nose. And the last time, the fourth time that they did it, I'm certain that the doctor said, listen, you have to go very, very deep into his nose to make sure we get an adequate sample, which is why when the nurse came in to do it, she brought two other nurses to help hold me down in case. Um, but uh, but it's a, it was a, it's a very um, unpleasant experience to have them. Uh, swab your, you know, put this brush into your nose to get a sample. Wow. I hadn't heard that before. In fact, I, I, I remember there was, I mean, there's so much back and forth on the internet, but I remember there was a people sort of making fun of the president for saying it was an uncomfortable test. You wouldn't want to go through. Oh um, no, it's, it, no, no, no. I mean, I don't, I, no one who has had the test would say that. I mean, my wife's boss, who's a doctor, she, she went in to get it. And she, she told my wife that she almost fainted. It's very uncomfortable and it's surprisingly uncomfortable. It is a sort of fairly rigid, coarse brush that is shoved in deep into your nose. I mean, it's, it's nothing like where one would not do it, but I mean, it's definitely an unpleasant test for sure. And then I came 
home, and that was my first visit to the ER, which was the Sunday after I got sick. And then it wasn't until the following the following Saturday when I was still febrile. So I was still with fever seven, eight days in, and then my wife said, and I agreed with her, <laughs> that we should probably get rechecked. And, and I didn't have my COVID results yet. So there was such a backlog that actually my initial COVID test that I had done at a hospital in Brooklyn, I didn't get the results for three weeks. So initially they weren't going to admit me because they were like, listen, your labs don't look so bad. You're you're able to maintain your oxygen and you probably have COVID, but we don't want to bring you in necessarily. And I was like, okay, that sounds reasonable. And I called my wife to pick me up. And she, um, who is almost always the voice of reason and intelligence, was like, she said, no, you can't come home. She's like, you know, if you deteriorate, you're going to have to go to the local hospital, which is not a great hospital. And you can't even walk across the curb, which is true. Like, and I was being, I guess, maybe a, maybe an overly passive patient, perhaps, or, but also I did not psychologically want to go into the hospital. Like, I, I absolutely wanted to avoid, firstly, A, hospitals are scary places, even though I work in hospitals, but B, if I didn't have COVID, I knew that I was going into a place that had a significant amount of COVID and other sort of scary pathogens lurking around, and I didn't want to expose myself unnecessarily to that. And But then my wife said, listen, you are clinically worse from, from a 24 hours previously. And that's why she was like, we're going to the emergency room. And then, and then she, she essentially said, no, I think you need to get admitted. And then I spoke to the doctor and the doctor said, of course, we'll admit you and we'll admit you for a day. And then it turned into three and a half days. I had, you know, there's, there's not much of a discussion, but there's a discussion about sort of cognitive issues with COVID infections and any viral infection. But for me, I, um, a day or two before I was admitted, I started to have significant, um, I don't know if it was anxiety or just self-doubt, but I was very, normally I, I consider myself that I can kind of catch on to things and think through problems fairly clearly. And, 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 and I like complex, challenging riddles and clinical medicine, but I felt extraordinarily um, unsure of my, my intelligence, my cognitive abilities, and and my ability to pay attention to difficult tasks, to the point that I was worried that I was not, uh, I was <laughs> that I was not a competent doctor, and that I would never be a competent doctor. Um, it got to that point of um, of significant um, self doubt, which was all the virus sort of poking around in my brain and and. Uh, making me think um, uh, unclearly, I think, or, and that, that was another thing that was very different. And my wife has never heard me say that before. And to the point that she, you know, then she spoke to my chair and said, Phil, <laughs> Phil is really not good. And, and then my chair sort of got into action and, you know, 
made sure that she checked on me regularly, which was very sweet. You're lucky that she insisted. I'm very lucky, very, very, very lucky that my wife insisted that I get admitted. And, and uh, they do um, multiple, they did multiple, multiple labs on me. And, and then when I developed diarrhea, they also did various stool studies as well. So one of my lab tests was a CRP, which is a nonspecific inflammatory marker, meaning that it can be up in various infections. It can be up in autoimmune disease. It can be up in cancer. But but this lab test is normally less than nine as normal, and mine was 250, which is extraordinarily um, extraordinarily high. And then there's another blood test called the ferret, and which is another marker of inflammation, among other things. And the ferritin is supposed to be, say, less than 200, and mine was 3,000. So, wow. And then they had done two chest X-rays on me, which showed something that looked like a, like a double pneumonia, like that I had um, pneumonia in both of my lungs. So the thought was that I had this, underlying COVID viral infection with a superimposed bacterial infection. So they treated me with two different antibiotics while I was in the hospital that I continued in pill form after I was discharged. What, and what was the treatment like in the hospital? What were they doing for you? It was sort of, you know, making sure I was eating. They gave me fluids briefly because I had um, no, um, appetite while I was in the hospital. And that was the only time I had no appetite. But I also was, had really um, impressive amount of um, thirst, which was, which was, which was very interesting. Like, and I don't, I'm usually not a big drinker. I don't drink much water during the day, but I was profoundly thirsty. And the other unusual phenomenon that I had while I was in the hospital was that I had a powerful aversion where I could taste salt, any salt on food. Um, I was, I was, it, I was, it was a repugnance actually. In fact, I'm a big chocoholic, so I wasn't feeling well. I said, well, you know, give me the, the dinner tray, but I want to have a brownie on it. And I couldn't finish the brownie because I could taste the salt in the brownie. And most brownies, obviously, you know, we don't taste them. They don't taste salty. But this was just, I had an exquisite sensitivity. Or I had, was able to detect in my palate salt, which was a noxious um, um, taste. Do you think that was all part of the dehydration? That you were trying to, your body was like, I don't need any salt? No, I think because COVID, they, they, there are these unusual... Um, reports of people having issues losing their sense of smell. Yeah, I've heard that. And smell and taste are obviously linked. And and I think that this was my version of, of this sort of unusual um, sensory uh, aberration. And it was only for about, about three days or so around the time that I was hospitalized. What was it like in the hospital? What was it like in that ward, in that section? You know, the when you say ward, it was, I was so, so isolated. There was no concept of ward. I was literally, from a large extent, felt like a prisoner. You were kept in a room and there was no contact from the outside. And everybody that comes to see you is 
gowned and gloved and, and uh, masked and and um, I mean they were all wonderful and sweet, but it was very 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 isolated. It was um, and and appropriately so, but still a very bizarre phenomenon. And also, I had gone into the hospital. I had gone into the emergency room not thinking I was going to get admitted, but then I didn't have my phone charger. I didn't have another change of underwear. You know, I didn't have anything to prepare for, for being, you know, um, admitted. And, and, uh, uh, that was another tricky thing because then even getting my phone charger and underwear was a little bit more of a complicated process with my wife bringing a little care package to the security desk. And then my chair potentially asking the chief of oncology to see if she could get my phone charger and underwear and bring and ultimately the nurse went down and got it but there were several different very sweet people that were willing to um help me out and uh, that was very very sweet but uh, but it was extraordinarily um isolating and terrifying to be in the hospital also knowing that you know when you come in with mild respiratory distress and you as a doctor, you know that you're worsening. You know, if they suddenly start giving you oxygen and you're feeling more breathless and you know that this disease can progress to require mechanical ventilation and being connected to a respirator and you know that that in and of itself carries a risk of morbidity and death, all of these things flood, flood your mind at a rapid rate. And, and, and then once again, you are completely physically isolated from other people who who care about you and and that's also even more upsetting you know or equally upsetting perhaps because you can't even vent you know i mean on the phone but i didn't even have the um capacity to talk on the phone because i didn't have enough of his respiratory reserve to talk on the phone so my when i talked to my wife or my brother I think I talked to my parents. Um, it was very brief because I just couldn't, I couldn't physically um, talk on the phone for any, any significant period. Uh, I mean, if you couldn't, so if you couldn't interact with anyone, you couldn't talk to anybody, what did you do for three days? Did you watch TV? No, actually. So what was I doing in the hospital? The answer is nothing. I did not even, I think I had the television on Maybe in the three and a half days I was in the hospital, I think the TV was on maybe an hour. So I had no books. I was not listening to music. I was either sleeping or awake, just sort of sort of staring blankly at the ceiling. Um, wow. Yeah. And I had no appetite. I had, you know, it was a very, it was a, it was a very bizarre state, um, just a very bizarre, and, and a state I've never even been in. You know, I mean, you know, everybody's been jet lagged or had the flu, but this was uh, unlike anything I had experienced in which I, and I wasn't bored. It wasn't like I was bored, which is, you know, like, oh my Catatonic God. Catatonic or something like. Just- yeah, but I had just so little physical and mental strength. I had so there was nothing, nothing in reserve. Literally, everything was just like, all right, let's pump the blood and 
get the air into the lungs. It was very like very. I had gone into very um sort of survival mode, I think, and and everything was just functioning at its most basic level with no additional gas. Um, it's like the scene in the in Star Trek or something where they're like essential systems only. Yeah, like, yeah. Only run exactly. life support. Like no exactly. to turn off You're all like the screens. Literally floating around in space. That's it, you know. And you know the lights. Some of the lights are on and the oxygen's still going. And you know, but uh, but also even food and food was of no um, interest to me. And I'm I'm a big food person, so I was. I mean, not that hospital food is wonderful, but I mean even eating food. I just said I didn't have um, any hunger which was also an unusual phenomenon for me too. But, uh, but yeah, I, I did nothing. And then I had my, um, I would have these paroxysms of cough where I would suddenly and very unpredictably, even from changing positions, have these episodes where I would be intractably coughing probably for the longest period, about a minute, but, during that period of time, I would have the sensation, at least, of total breathlessness. That I, that I not only was coughing intractably, but I also could not, or felt that I could not catch my breath and could not get air into my lungs. Which was that was the worst uh, of everything that I experienced. That was the worst sensation because I, I literally felt that I. I felt as if I could not breathe, and I had never had any unpleasant sensation like that before in my life. Um, that was that was that was the most upsetting. Were you intubated? I was not intubated. I re- I just required nasal cannula for a day, half a day. What's that? Nasal cannula are these um, plastic prongs that give oxygen in through the nose. Yeah, that was just because they saw that I, my oxygen saturation dropped. And then, because if you saw me and I was lying completely still in a bed, I didn't, I didn't look that bad, I think, except I was breathing quickly. Um, but if I had to go up and go walk six steps to the bathroom, that's when I would deteriorate. It struck me a, a couple times while you were talking through all that, that as horrible and terrifying and all of those things that that was, it strikes me that you're very lucky to be a doctor and be married to a doctor and have, you know, have her know, you know, no, you need to be admitted now and, and have, be able to call in favors at the hospital and get, look at tests and, and all, you know, get, probably get, I'm sure you got seen faster at the ER you know, because you said you went to see your friend and, uh, you know, and sometimes ignorance is actually bliss, right? So what I'm saying is like, sometimes knowing more is not good, you know, like, oh, if you tell me the labs, I'm like, I would have absolutely freaked out because some of those labs were just really extraordinarily crappy labs and signify pending doom. And and so like if it's like oh yeah that is kind of high doc you know like oh yeah the blood tests are a little bit high don't worry about it I'm like don't tell me not to worry about it those are awful lab tests and and then knowing like you know um um 
how other doctors may be thinking about your clinical case sometimes can be reassuring and not reassuring. And, and you know, but I, I never once looked at my monitor. You know, it's by my head, you know, so I'm on a bed and the monitor's at my head facing out. But I, 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 I didn't do that once, which I also think was a very, was a protective response. Like, I don't want to see it. You know, I, I don't want to see what my numbers are, you know. And also there's an element of faith. And I think that in terms of the, of the people taking care of you, and I'm like, no, I'm here. And I'm trusting the doctors and the nurses to look out for me, you know. You know, and that's truly what I did. And, and I really left my fate in, in, their, in their very capable hands, luckily. <laughs> and I was very happy with the, the care that I received as well, which, which is also nice because, you know, when it's your hospital, you're like, wow, this is a great hospital. I'm really proud to work here, you know. So that's also a positive thing, I think. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, that's great. Yeah. But my wife is just, she just has the wisdom of that's not being a doctor. I think that's just being a wise person. So, so that's just a fortunate. <laughs> lucky, to, lucky to be married to one of those then, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, that's just an, an extra plus. When you got better, did you get better sort of all at once? Did you wake up one day and feel a lot better or was it a more gradual process? Absolutely a gradual process. I mean, so it was not like, oh, I, you know, that I woke up in the morning and stretched my arms above my head and then went for a jog on the beach. That no way. It was a, and I could just feel it in my, I could feel it. I've never even had asthma or, uh, or pneumonia in the past. And, and I could literally feel this heaviness in my lung when, when, when walking. And unfortunately, when I left the hospital, they made me um, take an ambulette, like, home, which I thought was a bit much. And, and then when, when I, my kids were waiting for me outside of the door and my wife was, you know, like, picture perfect, you know. And when I got up and got onto the stretcher in the hospital to get into the ambulette, I was fine. But then, probably because I was excited to be home, too, <clears throat> I got off the ambulette. I walked off the ambulette. And uh, I took like three steps and immediately started to have these um, paroxysms of cough and breathlessness and one of these attacks again, which is, which is not what my, I wanted. I, A, I didn't, I didn't want my kids to see and, and, or my wife, and that's not what they want to see. And I don't want to, you know, so I don't look too much better because I'm literally, I immediately have to sit down and I actually ripped off my mask because I just felt that I couldn't breathe. And then even if you have a thin piece of paper over your, over your face, you, you know, you, it psychologically, it feels like you can't breathe. And then of course I'm like, and I'm exposing my kids to my deadly germs. And, and, and so that, that, that homecoming was not as, uh, as Norman Rockwellian as I had hoped, but, uh, but, uh, but, but, and it was a very, very gradual, um, recovery. And I still, even when I had come home, I stayed in isolation from my family for an additional, uh, three days 
Um, again, meaning isolation, meaning with the exception of going to the bathroom, just physically staying in my room again. And that was, what, about two weeks ago when you came home? Yeah, yeah. So I came home a week ago last from Friday. Well, so do you have a sense of, of when did you stop being contagious? Do you have a sense of that? Are you contagious now? I you know, mean... uh, you know uh, some of this stuff is not totally clear. One of the things is that I'm, I'm essentially not coughing and, and uh, I have no overt symptoms and I don't have any fever. And, and that has not been for weeks. In other words, two days before I was discharged from the hospital was my last fever. So, so for, you know, for, for two and a half weeks, I haven't had any fever. So according to the recommendations of the, of the various hospitals where I work, they're sort of saying, no, you're okay. Um, and that you're not overtly contagious. Um, still, I, I personally would, you know, and so that means in my house, I am not wearing a mask. I am not, um, you know, I'm not in isolation. I'm around, you know, sitting on a couch um, with my family watching a movie. But but it, even when I came out of isolation, I didn't hug or kiss my family for like a week, probably. So 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 even though I, you know, I, and I followed the rule pretty much of of what you know the guidelines that 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 are not clearly evidence-based, but the guidelines that the hospitals are providing in terms of what is safe to be around other human beings again. I'm not going to hug or kiss you for a while. No, all right. It's okay. I am hoping that my exposure has conferred some immunity to me and that I can ask you now work helping. Oddly enough, when I had to go back into the hospital, back to work, you know, the patients, you know, the first patient that I happen to see is one of my patients that happens to have COVID. So I think, you know, of course, I made my my children a little bit anxious, like after, you know, recovering from COVID, then then choosing, I don't know, choosing, well, I mean, it's my job, like going into the hospital to see a patient that has this, you know, potentially very noxious viral infection. There's a little anxiety-inducing to the kids, but then I was telling my kids that I'm like, no, 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 I think I actually have some immunity, and I am still doing all of the precautions that any other healthcare provider would do, you know. So, you know, which is, you know, protect yourself when you're going in and and minimizing the extent of your exposure and, and, and the different things that we can do. When did you go back to work? I went back to work two weeks ago. Oh, you did like oh, almost as soon as you came home. You know, because initially, I, I my initial back to work was telemedicine, so I was doing. I wasn't physically needing to leave my house. So initially, when I went back to work, it was phone calls or video calls with patients from my house. So that was back to work, and 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 then and then for the past week and a half, I've been physically going in to see patients in the hospital. Well, this has been amazing, man. Thank you for talking to me and sharing all this. It's it's the clearest view into what this might actually be like for someone that I've had yet. You know? Yeah, um, it was just yeah, it was a it was a real crappy experience. And and the other thing is like you know, you know when I was 
when I was really worsening, um, one of the most terrifying, you know, I'm 48. So like, I was like, oh my gosh. And this is never even, I've never been in a car accident. I have, you know, like I have not been sick in my life. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, what if this is it? And like, what if this is it? And I go into a hospital and I don't come out, you know, and at 48, when you're contemplating your own mortality, um, and you know, that's a terrifying experience, you know, and that was, but that was like, I'm like, well, what if, what if it goes sour, you know, and you can only do as much as you can. And, and I'm not, you know, when you come in and if this next day you're like, Oh, wow, I feel much better then that's great. But if the next day you feel worse, you're like, all right, this is, I'm buying myself uh, an ICU bed. And then from an ICU bed, you know, you can go uh, to other places that I was not looking forward to, you know? So, so that, that sort of, that sort of, you know, you had said, isn't it sort of good to be a doctor? Sometimes it's not because you're aware of, of progression of disease and, and the ramifications and the result of what could happen if your disease progresses, which is not, you know, rosy. So, so, so that was another um, psychological challenge, I think. And the psychological challenges, I think, were just as difficult as the physical challenges. My name is David Hoffman, and this is The Big Shut-In, a production of Race Car Radio. If you have feedback for me or have a story that you'd like to share, you can reach out to me at thebigshutin at racecarradio.com.